0: Blue Origin is a uh, it is a private space exploration company that builds rockets. Now I had never heard of Blue Origin until a couple of weeks ago. You may be familiar with their uh, their more well-known competitor, SpaceX, uh, but Blue Origin is owned and funded by Jeff Bezos, who is the uh, Bezos, who is the founder, president, and CEO of Amazon. So many people, when they reach a certain level of wealth, they just kind of stop working and play golf or something like that. He decides to build a private space exploration company. That's what you can do when you have started Amazon. But their their company's mission is to launch, land, and repeat. In other words, they want to build reusable rockets for private space flight. So that's their, their mission. They have successfully done this That with a rocket called the New Shepherd. It's intended to take six people 62 miles above the Earth's, uh, above the Earth's surface. Now, they have not had a manned flight, but you can go online and go on YouTube and see where they have successfully launched this rocket, the New Shepherd, and landed it. It's intended to be landed with very little damage so that in a very short amount of time, they can launch it again. And so they want to take six people up by the end of the year, 62 miles above the Earth's atmosphere, or above the Earth's surface. It's high enough where you can see the atmospheric barrier. you don't break it. Uh, you can see the Earth's curvature. It's only an 11-minute flight. It's for five to six minutes of it, you are weightless. And you can do all this for the low price of somewhere between two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand dollars. So that's that's their goal. Now I know all this because a few other admin pastors and I got to visit their manufacturing and assembly plant. In uh, in the northwest, uh, we were there visiting another church, and one of the members of the church is one of the rocket scientists. He's one of the engineers uh, there with Blue Origins. and he engineers and and machines what has to be the part with the coolest name. It's called the Gox Dome, G O X D O M E. It's the Gox Dome. It's the second hottest part on the rocket. It's right beside. I don't know the exact term, but like the combustible chamber is where it is. It's the largest mechanical part that has ever been 3D printed. And I got to see it. I couldn't touch it. I couldn't take a picture of it. I couldn't do anything like that. But it was really cool. And I got to meet its maker there. Um, as we were going throughout the, uh, throughout the plant, there's just a number of times where I very acutely felt I'm just out of place here. I sense my own stupidity. I don't even know what questions to ask. You're telling me things that I kind of understand, but then when I want to follow up, engage in conversation, I just don't have the words to say. Um, It was quite literally one of those places where you could not say, well, it's not rocket science, because it is. It is rocket science. One of the questions, though, from the moment we walked in to the moment we left, that just kept going around the group of us, is would you get in the rocket? If someone said, you are of the physical fitness and we will fully pay your way to be part of the first manned launch, would you get in the rocket? Knowing that this has been developed and assembled by over 3,000 of some of the brightest scientists and engineers and mechanics in the world, that you have toured the assembly line, you have seen some of the welds, you've seen the equipment, you've met some of the people that have put this together, that millions of dollars have been invested in this. Would you get in the rocket? And there was only one of us that said, without question, yes, I would do it. I'd get in the rocket the rest of us, maybe it's just because we're all a bunch of admin guys or sitting there going, weighing in the risk. I don't know. I don't think I would do it. And the, the remaining nine of us did not have the confidence to say, absolutely, without question, I would get in the rocket. Living in a fallen world, trying to trust the Lord, can feel a bit like that uncertainty of whether or not you would get in the rocket. There are all sorts of reasons why you know that you can trust the Lord. You have his word. You have his people. There's all sorts of reasons that you can point to as to why you say, yes, I fully trust the Lord. Yet you still struggle to have absolute certainty that you can do so. There's enough fear, pain, hurt, trouble that makes you hesitate And that's why the lord has given us psalm 9 today it's because he gives us in this psalm psalm 9 a vision of god's sovereign rule of god's righteous judgment over the entire world he gives us a vision of how his kingdom is established forever and ever and with that vision comes assurance and the assurance comes not in a season of comfort and ease but in the midst of In the middle of trials and affliction, David finds assurance. He finds his confidence in the Lord. And so if this is you today struggling to trust the Lord, I pray that you will have absolute confidence in King Jesus' sovereign rule and reign in your life. That's what we want to think and pray about today from Psalm 9. So if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles there. You'll find it on page 451 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Follow along as I read. To the choir master, according to Laman, a psalm of David, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. And he has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness he judges the peoples with uprightness the lord is a stronghold for the oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble and those who know your name put their trust in you for you o lord have not forsaken those who seek you sing praises to the lord who sits enthroned in zion tell among the peoples his deeds for he avenges blood for he who avenges blood is mindful of them he does not forget the cry of the afflicted Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are ensnared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail, let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord, let the nations know that they are but men. What I want to do today is take just a few moments and and walk through the passage Seek to explain it, understand how it's structured, what's the the meaning and point there. And then I want to take some time to give you and to apply four gospel themes that we're going to see from this passage. And I think the outline will become clearer as we go along. The psalm was written by David. You can see that in the title there, a psalm of David, along with a number of other psalms that you'll find in this portion of the book of Psalms of the Psalter. Uh, we don't know the specific context in which it was written. It's vague. It's clear it's a troubled time. Presumably it's a time in which David and Israel are at war with other nations, with their enemies. So those are the terms he used, the wicked nations, the enemies. Uh, but the way in which it was written meant that it could be sung by Israel throughout their history. It was a psalm that would be fitting for a lot of different occasions that they could sing uh, throughout their history. At first, the natural breaks, at first reading, the natural breaks in the passage are a little confusing. It's it's, it's a number of couplets. You'll find ten couplets. So you find two verses and then a line break, two verses and then a line break. There's one exception there. Uh, So the way the translations have it here, it's a little confusing to tell where the natural breaks are. As patient as you are as a congregation, I didn't think you would want ten points to follow along, two verses at a time. So that's not the way we're doing it. Uh, But that's just the way it reads. But if you read it slowly, just a couple of pass throughs, you can see where it actually divides up nicely into two large sections. You have verses 1 through 12 as one section, and then verses 13 through 20 as the second section. So in the first section, verses 1 through 12, David praises the Lord. That's what he's doing. He praises the Lord for his wonderful deeds. He recounts how the Lord has judged wicked nations. And now he's protected his people. And this section, it's bookend by two praises. So it begins with verses 1 through 2, praising the Lord. And then he calls on the people in verses 11 and 12 to praise the Lord. So in verse two, verses 1 through 2, you see it very clearly. He says, he will praise the Most High. I will give thanks with my whole heart. I will recount wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult. I will, sing your, I will sing praise to your name. So David wants his whole heart, his entire being, to be taken up with the Lord. He wants to be consumed with who the Lord is and what the Lord has done in his life. In verse 11, he calls the people to do the same. He says they're to sing praises and tell among the peoples his deeds. So notice that even in the midst of David's suffering, he calls the people to tell others. He calls Israel to tell others what the Lord has done. There's never a a time out in life. There's never a pause, even when life is difficult, not to tell others who the Lord is and what he has done in our lives. In verse 12, he summarizes why they are to sing God's praise. He says that he is the one that avenges the blood of his people and that he is mindful of his people. He hears their cries when they call out to him. And so that's why David praises the Lord. He is a sovereign king, he reigns victorious, he executes judgment, and he cares for his people. Now in between verses one and two and verses 11 and 12, there's two bookends. So in that middle section, David recalls how the Lord has done this. If you were to take that word, wonderful deeds that he is recounting and just double-click on it and say, okay, explain to me more. Further explain to me what you mean by wonderful deeds. Well, he would give you what you find in the middle section. In verses 3 through 8, he thinks back about how the Lord has defeated different nations and enemies. In verses 5 through 6, you find this very sobering statement about what judgment looked like on these nations. He says that he blotted out their name, Their cities were rooted out. The memory of them has perished. It's a way of saying that everything that they stood for as nations has been completely eradicated, completely destroyed. Their character has been eradicated. All that they've worked toward, all their accomplishments has been destroyed. Everything that, that they think is going to give them a place in history is completely gone and forgotten. And so he can say that they came to an end in everlasting ruin, completely ruined, and it's forever. Now, by contrast to these nations, he says in verses 7 through 8, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for righteousness. So these foreign nations, they build their own little empires. They build their own little kingdoms and their thrones and their cities with all their accomplishments, thinking that they are going to live on and dominate this world forever. The Lord devastates them in destruction and judgment. And the Lord is the one that sits enthroned forever. He is the one who is king and sovereign over all things. And as such, David can say that he's a place of safety for his people. So in verses 9 through 10, he says twice that he is a stronghold to those who seek him. When God's people seek after the Lord as a place of comfort, safety, and security, he will not turn away from them. He will not bar them at the gates and say, you cannot enter. No, he joyfully welcomes his people. So when David is oppressed, when he's troubled, he turns to the Lord by faith and he praises him as his sovereign king and judge. His affliction did not keep him from striving after joyful worship. So that's the first section that you get. David is praising the Lord for his wonderful deeds. In the second section, verses 13 through 20, David petitions the Lord for his grace. He petitions the Lord for his grace. So thinking back in the previous section, in in light of what the Lord has done previously, he now comes and he asks the Lord to be gracious to him, to relieve him in the midst of his affliction, to judge his enemies, those who are making life difficult for him. And this section is also bookend, but it's not bookended by two praises, but with two prayers, with two petitions. In verses 13 through 14, he says, Be gracious to me. See my affliction. David recognizes his need for God's love, his need for God's tender care in his life. He's undeserving, and so he cries out to the Lord because he quite literally feels as though he's at a point of death. Notice there he says that, He's at the the gates of death. This is the imagery of entering into a city, but this city is marked by death. It's characterized by darkness and decay. But he wants to be at the gates of the daughter of Zion. That's just the poetic way of saying, I want to be among God's people in the city of God, rejoicing in your salvation. That's the place I want to be restored to. And then in verses 19 through 20, we get the second petition. And here he just concludes asking the Lord to arise from the throne in which he sits and to execute judgment upon his enemies. He says, let the nations know that they are but men. In other words, let them have an encounter with your holy justice and in coming to face-to-face with your holy justice, they will know who they really are, mortal men, men that are destined for death. Arise from your throne and make this happen, O Lord. And then again in verses 18 through 20, we find this middle section that's very similar to the previous portion of the psalm. He wants the Lord to judge these wicked nations, to remember the needy, And the poor people. It's really interesting the way David prays here in this middle section. So he opens asking the Lord to be gracious. He closes asking the Lord to judge the people. But then in the middle section, these verses, the way they're worded, it sounds like this is what the Lord has done. It sounds like the Lord has answered his prayers. And what's going on here is in the original verb form, it's written, in such a way so as to imply present assurance. It's kind of like our idiom, it's, it's as good as done. You ask something of me and I just say, it's as good as done, you, you can bank that it is, has happened. It, I'm going to do it and you know I'm going to do it without question. And so when, when David prays, he is so assured that the Lord will answer, he can say it as though it's already happened. That's how much confidence he has in the Lord and so he says in verse 17 the wicked shall return to Sheol he is confident also that the Lord will not forget the needy or the poor their hope shall not perish our experience in praying I think is often a lot like David's when we're troubled when we're afflicted we we often pray the same way David does it's a prayer mixed with praise with statements of assurance there are moments where we cry out to the Lord pleading our, our, our difficult situation. And there are moments where we make these confident assertions of who the Lord is, seeking to strengthen our faith. We go back and forth between what the Lord has done and asking Him to do it again. And we want our whole heart, our whole being to be devoted to Him in worship. But our fears, they, they make life difficult. And so we go to the Lord and we Ask the Lord to be who we know who he is, our sovereign king and comforter. So that's the explanation of the text. Now, when you when you pause at the end of understanding it, you begin to ask, well, how exactly does this apply to me? Because my life and David's life, well, they're a lot different. I'm not a king, I'm not a queen ruling over a nation. I'm not part of a nation or a government that is at war with other nations. The Lord has not revealed himself in giving uh, me as a, as an, and others as a nation laws that, that govern how we ought to live in every aspect of our life. And so that's not us, and thus individually nor as Christians do I think we ought to pray this same way for those that make life difficult for us. This is not an imprecatory psalm. I have a, another sermon on those so you can hear further thoughts and reflections as to why that is. But David is, is not us and we are not David. And Jesus calls us to love and to pray for our enemies. Paul tells us to bless those who persecute us and not to repay evil for evil. So when you get to the end of a psalm like this, you begin to ask, okay, just very practically and specifically, how does it apply to us? And that's why I want to give you four gospel themes. And by themes, what I'm saying is that when you read this psalm in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, you can gain the same assurance that David had. You can have the same vision for who God is as David did. You can see King Jesus as the sovereign ruler who reigns perfectly over your life, as the tender king to whom you can trust. And so that's what I want to give you. Four gospel themes. Here's the first. God's grace is to lead you to joyful worship. God's grace is to lead you to joyful worship. John Piper has famously said that missions exist because worship doesn't. I think it's just a a, a wonderful reminder of what ultimately should drive our missions, our evangelism. It ought to be because we love our neighbors. It ought to be because of the command to go and to make disciples of all nations. But ultimately we go because there are men and women made in the image of God of every tribe, tongue, and language that are not worshiping Jesus Christ as king. And we want to see them worshiping him as king. That's why we go. I think King David would say grace exists because worship doesn't. Those people are not worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not worship the Lord Jesus Christ as we ought. And thus, what we need is God's grace in our life. Look again at verses 13 and 14. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. Oh, you who lift me up from the gates of death that i may recount all your praises that in the gates of the daughter of zion i may rejoice in your salvation why is the david asking the lord to be gracious here what what does it say it says that i may recount all of your praises it wasn't simply that he wanted relief because his circumstances were overwhelming It wasn't because he kind of reached a point where he just couldn't handle it anymore. This isn't the the Jesus-take-the-will type of Christianity that he's asking for. No, he recognizes that he needs God's grace to praise him, to be restored to joyful worship. Worship was his aim. Worship is what fueled his prayers. And yet his affliction made the occasion for that particularly difficult. It made it hard. He describes himself as as at the gates of death. It's not a good place to be. Not a lot of hope there at the gates of death. It's dark. It's discouraging. It's difficult. There's decay. He wanted to be in the gates of the daughter of Zion, there among God's people, singing God's praises, rejoicing in his salvation. And what did he need to get from the gates of death to the gates of Zion? He needed grace. He needed God's grace to restore him to joyful worship. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5-6, through 6, what God has done for us, in his love and why he has given us his love. Ephesians chapter one, verses four through six, what God has done for us in his love and why he has shown us this love, he says, in love he predestined us for adoptions to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. With which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In love, He predestined us for adoption to what end but to the praise of His glorious grace. If the sole aim of your prayer is relief, that is a good thing to pray for, relief. But if that is the sole aim, then it is an incomplete prayer. There is a much greater goal in praying to the Lord in the midst of our affliction. And it is so that we might rightly worship him. Uh, We as Christians are not the first to experience an outbreak of diseases. In 1854, there was a cholera outbreak in London and Spurgeon is pastoring there in the heart of the city. Number of people in the city are dying. The death rate of cholera was much greater than that of the coronavirus at the time. And he has seen people in his own congregation die, and he did what many pastors and what many Christians have done throughout history in caring for those who are sick because of a, a virus or a deadly disease. He went and visited the sick. And this is a, a small thing that he recounts when he was out one night visiting someone. He says, I went home and was soon called away again. I had been out visiting the sick, and as soon as I get home, I get a call that I need to go out and visit someone else. And he says that time to see a young woman. She also was in the last extremity. In other words, she was at the point of death. But it was a fair, fair sight. It was a a beautiful, beautiful sight when he got there. She was singing, though she knew she was dying. And talking to those around her and telling her brothers and sisters to follow her to heaven, bidding goodbye to her father, and all the while smiling as if it had been her marriage day. It is the day of her death, and yet she found such joy that Spurgeon observed, it was like it was her marriage day. She was happy and blessed, is what he said. It's good to ask the Lord for relief in your reflection. But is your desire more for relief, or is it more to know the Lord and to know his grace? He may show you relief, but like this young woman, he may give you the grace in the midst of your affliction to worship him better. Pray for grace to worship. Second, the Lord is mindful of your suffering. The Lord is mindful of your suffering. A number of times, David speaks of how the Lord is there, and he's there for his people. He's on their side when they are hurting and inflicted. Look at verses 9 through 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. For those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. He describes the people as oppressed, as afflicted, as needy, as poor. That's their experience. But it's in the middle of that experience. It's not in spite of that experience. But it's in going through that experience that they find the Lord to be their stronghold. They find the Lord to be that he does not forsake them, that he has not turned their back on them. The fallen world is full of hurt. It's full of suffering. It's full of brokenness. And some of you may know this presently in your own life. Disappointment, shattered dreams, loss of purpose or identity, fear or uncertainty of the future, joylessness, a type of gut-wrenching anxiety, and, and there can be all sorts of reasons why this is your, your experience now past wrongs have left you scarred. You feel helpless as you sit there and you watch someone else suffer and you care for this person so much and you think, there's nothing I can do. If I could just take on their pain, but I can't. And so you feel helpless, loneliness, childlessness, prolonged singleness, overwhelming responsibilities. Life is just out of control And you can't get it back in control, fear that your sin will find you out, that someone will know what you have done. And so, some of you, I trust, hear this psalm and you think, That's me. I'm poor. I'm afflicted. I'm needy. And yet, at the same time, you hear this psalm and you think, That's not me. My fears, they don't subside so quickly confidence doesn't seem to come as easily to me as it did to David. And 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 why is that why is my experience seem so different than David's? Why in the midst of my hurt and my fear don't I have the same confidence? And so if that's you, I want to give you two things. So to the hurting, fearful, afflicted, struggling, whatever term you may put on it. But those of you that don't have confidence and are struggling to trust the Lord, here are just a couple of things. First, I just want you to stare at verses 13 and 14. Just stare at them and remember that this psalm is for you. It is here for you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, O you who lift me up from the gates of death. David felt as though he was entering the city in the gates of death. And the Lord inspired him to record his experience, to record his feelings for your encouragement, for your instruction, for your sympathy. You're not alone. The Lord has not forgotten you. He has not forsaken you. Hearing this psalm today is a reminder That the Lord lifts up his people and you need to trust him in that and that's the second point trust that Jesus is your most tender king trust that Jesus is your most tender king now when someone says king tenderness is probably not the first thing that comes to mind power majesty all sorts of things come to mind but tenderness is probably not the first thing that comes to mind but Jesus he's not just any king He is a sovereign, powerful king. Oh, but he is a tender, loving, gentle king. Verse 10 says, And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. If you seek Christ for comfort, you will find it. He will not turn it. He will not turn away from you, and he will not deny you that comfort. Reflecting on Matthew Matthew eleven twenty eight, where Jesus said, "All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, and I will give you rest." A pastor from a long ter- time ago, Richard Sibbs, he wrote this. Speaking of Jesus, he says he shed his blood, and now makes intercession in heaven for weak Christians, standing between them and God's anger. He is a meek king; he will admit mourners into his presence a king of poor and afflicted persons. As he has beams of majesty, so he has a heart of mercy and compassion. What mercy may we not expect from so gracious a mediator who took our nature upon, upon himself that he might be gracious? He is a good physician, and he is good at curing all diseases, especially at binding up the brokenhearted. hearted If that's you, I pray that you will trust Christ today. I pray that you will remember that he is mindful of your suffering because he has suffered for you. Third, God is worthy of praise for his righteous judgment. God is worthy of praise for his righteous judgment. This past week, I turned 40 years old. And uh, some of you encouraged me. You reminded me it's just the number. You reminded me that you're much older than I am. And you're my favorite member. Some of you mocked me. You made fun of me. The Lord sees you. When you turn 40, you you realize a number of things. And one of the things you realize is that you're just not very cool. I went shopping with my thirteen year old daughter yesterday and we were looking for clothes and I'm just looking around going, How is this cool? Why do you want it? I didn't say it, but as soon as I thought of it, I just could recall those same experiences with my parents and realize, Yep, I've arrived. I'm I'm forty. I also realized I just I'm I'm not cool enough to keep up with popular Christianity. So all the, the songs and the artists and the speakers, those types of things that, that are considered popular Christianity, I just don't keep up with. I don't, I don't know it very well. I'm of the uh, DC Talk, Mike, Michael W. Smith era. So some of you know what that is. Uh, my friend who lives on the hill in Washington, D.C. lives in the house where DC Talk started. The, baptism, the baptismal pool that was part of their church is quite literally under his kitchen floor. So that's the generation I'm of. Um, But in my 40 years of life, but especially the last 18 years of ministry, I've observed a couple of helpful trends, unhelpful trends, excuse me, a couple of unhelpful trends in theology within popular Christianity at large. And I realize that's very vague. But the first thing I've observed is that the talk of sin as rebellion and disobedience has been replaced with sin being brokenness and hurt. That's what it's, it's become. I think it's a symptom of the therapeutic culture that we live in. Jesus is now the healer to our hurt and not the savior of our sin. Now, my last point was to those who are hurting. All right, so you may think you're, you're contradicting yourself. I'm seeking to say that Jesus is the tender king to those who first know him as savior those who know jesus as the one who has satisfied the wrath of god for him can in turn turn to him as a tender king and find that tenderness and so that's the point but but by and large the talk of sin as disobedience has become that of hurt and brokenness the other unhelpful trend i've observed is that god's love is void of god's justice there's there's a lot of talk of god's love but not a lot of talk of God's justice. I, I took um, my oldest daughter and some of her friends a couple of years ago to a, uh, a, a concert of a well-known Christian band that I think a lot of their, their songs lyrically are really good. I like their their vibe, their musical style and tone and sound, and so we really enjoyed it. But during the... Uh, the kind of set break uh, in between, one of the band members came up and and shared the gospel. And the gospel was simply about how God loves the outcast, about how God loves the hurt, that the rejection you have felt in your life, that when you come to Jesus, you will not feel that rejection. All of which I say is absolutely true, but I think it fundamentally misses just how mind-blowing God's love really is. God loves enemies. He loves rebels. He loves lawbreakers. Yes, he loves those who have experienced the hurt and the brokenness because of sin and living in a fallen world. But more fundamentally, he loves those who have disobeyed him. That is what is utterly amazing about his love. He has satisfied his holy justice against sin for all those who turn and trust in him. And so the confidence that David finds in this psalm is in the fact that justice will will prevail. Righteousness will be upheld. Verse 11, why should the people sing God's praises? For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. That's what he says. In verse 1 when he says that he wants to recount his wonderful deeds, what are those wonderful deeds? Verse 4, for you have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. I think when we understand this, when we understand that God is worthy of praise for his righteous judgment, we come to better value the gospel. And I think there are two specific aspects of the gospel that we come to better value when we understand that God is worthy of praise for his righteous judgment. Now, the first thing I'm going to say I recognize is not a popular thing at all to say, and is even hard for me to say, and it can be hard to hear, but we have to say it because it's true. So the first thing is that we come to value the justice of hell as eternal conscious punishment. It defames God's infinite holiness to think that those who live as though there is no God or those who live to think that they have enough goodness to bring themselves to God deserve anything less than eternal conscious punishment. I'm not saying that we find joy in this hard truth. I'm saying that it is right and just. There is a rightness and a justice about the Lord, and he is worthy of praise for it. In the book of Revelation, when John sees a vision of King Jesus coming to take the scroll and to open its seals, this scroll stands for God's judgment. And each seal that is broken and as the scroll is further unrolled, God's judgment gets bigger and bigger upon the earth. And when John sees the vision of King Jesus as being the only one worthy to do this, to come and execute the judgment, all heaven and earth, they do not say, stop. D- don't do it. The-, the world is not deserving and people are too good for what you are about to do. That's not what they say at all. All of heaven and earth cry out, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Martyrs cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will you judge and avenge our blood? on those who dwell on earth. Revelation is a vision of eternal righteous judgment and heaven and earth break out in worship because of it. Why? Because King Jesus brings final judgment against all sin and all wickedness of those who do not turn and trust in him. The Lord is worthy of praise for it. And Revelation shows us that. The second thing that we come to value is that we come to value and glory in the sufficiency of the cross. We come to value and glory in the sufficiency of the cross. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to accomplish everything needed to satisfy God's wrath and to bring us to himself. Jesus did everything. We didn't do any of it. Romans chapter 3 says that that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation, as the wrath-bearing, the sin-atoning sacrifice for those who would have faith in him. Why did he do this? He says, so that he might be just, that is to say, that so that God might be righteous and just in satisfying the law's holy demands that sin be punished that was met, that was satisfied, God was just in that. And at the same time, he might be the justifier. That is to say that he might be the righteous maker, the righteous declarer of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Both things happened when Jesus was put forward as the propitiation, and both things happen for us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. At the end of Revelation, there's a, there's a vision of the new heavens and earth. There's a marriage supper. There's a city. There's a garden. It is a glorious vision. And every time in, Genesis, or in Revelation chapter 21 and at the beginning of Revelation chapter 22, when Jesus is referred to, when he is alluded to, he is called the Lamb. That's all he's called is the Lamb. Why is that the only term he's given there? Because those in the city enjoying the marriage feast, those that are there enjoying the bounty of the garden are there because the lamb was slain and it was for no other reason. That's why they are there. They escaped God's judgment through the blood of the lamb that was slain on the cross. And so, brothers and sisters, eternity will be filled with praise to a lamb who died for you bearing God's wrath. If you're here today and you know yourself not to be a Christian, you need to know that you can expect a fearful and awful judgment if you do not turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. I've just sought to explain to you the good news of the gospel, that God in his great love sent Jesus Christ to bear the wrath of God for all those who deserve it and who would turn from their sins and trust in him. And my exhortation to you today is to do that. To confess your need for God's grace, for his love found in the gospel, to turn from your sin, to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. I would love to talk to you more about that. You'll find me in the back afterwards. Fourth and lastly, fourth gospel theme and lastly, your hope is in God's kingdom that is established forever. If you're a Christian, your hope is in God's kingdom that is established forever. There's a, there's a tension in Psalm 9, and I've, I've tried to bring it out, I've tried to tease it out a little bit as David is suffering. And he feels his weakness and his helpless and all the rest. But when he speaks of God's throne, he just seems unshaken, unnerved by all that's going on around him. When he speaks of who the Lord is and how he is enthroned forever, look at verses seven and eight. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. How can David say this with such confidence and then just a couple breaths later cry out about his affliction? I think it's because he he believed the Lord by faith. Verse 10, And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. His hope and confidence in God's eternal kingdom was so great that he spoke of it as a present reality, even though everything around him said the complete opposite. That's what faith looks like. That's what hope looks like in God's eternal kingdom. The world looks like it's falling apart around you, but you're steady, trusting the Lord. Hoping in Him. Hebrews eleven one says, "Now faith is the assurance thing of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen." Second Corinthians five seventeen through eighteen, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen. Are eternal that includes God's kingdom we cannot see it in its fullness and all of its glory today but it is real and we believe it so brothers and sisters your trials your afflictions they do not dethrone God his chair doesn't kind of wobble and shake a little bit there's not a leg that needs to be tightened when when hard times come into your life He sits fully enthroned, sovereignly ruling and reigning over your life. And your hope should be in him and in that reality. I really do wish I could say with absolute confidence that I would get in the rocket. Like, this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Someone pays your way. You met the maker of the Gox Dome. You saw the plant, you saw the lasers that did the welds. Why would you not get in the rocket? And it's just kind of like there's enough history, you know. I'm 40 years old, which meant I was in elementary school when the Challenger blew up. And I remember watching it on, on, on TV in elementary school. It's just There's enough history and there's enough uncertainty that says, I can't do it. You can, but, but I can't do it. But it's not the same with the Lord. As the song says, all fear and doubt and want are removed. Despite your feelings and circumstances, you can have a wholehearted confidence that the Lord is gracious, that the Lord sits enthroned, and that King Jesus sovereignly rules over your life. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. And Father, the fact that we can call you that is an amazing thing, that you are gracious and that you are our heavenly Father, which means you sit enthroned forever. King Jesus rules over all things. You are the Father that is most tender and loving and caring to us, as is your Son, and you minister to us in this way by your Spirit. Father, we pray that you would give us the grace not to be fearful, but to trust you and to have complete confidence in you. We pray that you would give us joyful worship. By your grace, we ask that you would do these things. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.